History awaits you. You will not fail it. French Premier Georges Clemenceau on the formation of the American First Army, August 1918. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 48, the first narrative of the Meuse-Argonne series, Allies on the Attack. So, sorry for the long silence, but uh, it's great to be back, uh, and it's great to have kicked off this series with the conversation with Mr. Randy Galke in the previous episode. I couldn't think of anyone else better suited to start this next series of podcasts. Since uh, it has been a while, let's do some administrative notes before we get back into the front lines. First, thank you to everyone who has submitted uh, reviews to iTunes. It is so very helpful to the show, and I'm grateful for the feedback. For the reviewer named Resplendent Man. Thank you for the kind words about my writing a book someday. Um, As I've been telling my family and work colleagues for some time now, I'm pretty sure that book deal is just around the corner, uh, and in no time, I'm going to have to hit the road for the publicity tour. The huge cash advance will be flowing in, you know, the talk show interviews, taking the World War I book market by storm. All of that is going to happen even before I write the book, of course. Um... And all of these things will start any day now. Any day now. Right. Also, it is time to recognize some patrons on Patreon. To Jim, Charles, Val, who was super cool to hang out with on the song, Yoye, Mark, Jason, Myron, Stephen, and Bruce. Thank you all so much for your kindness and your generous gifts to the BFWWP. Your ongoing donations are a real help to the show, and I thank you humbly for the continued support you've given. If you are interested in becoming a patron of the podcast, please visit patreon.com slash battles of the first world war podcast. It is strictly voluntary, and as a patron, You'll get early access to all episodes, as well as transcripts and bibliographies for narrative episodes, as well as other perks. If ongoing patronage isn't possible, no worries. The PayPal button on firstworldwarpodcast.com is there for one-time donations. If a financial contribution is not possible right now, again, no worries. You can still help the show greatly by submitting a review on iTunes. Last admin note, this past August, I spent 10 days in France, five in the Meuse-Argonne, five on the Somme. It really was the trip of a lifetime, and I encourage you to get out to France if you are able and take in the sights there. I have to give a huge Shout out to my main man, 
and stepson Lee of the Viking Age podcast, my army brother Chuck, my man Clint of the Mind Shift podcast, and his super cool sister Val. You guys made the trip the unforgettable experience that it was. Thank you so much. Okay, I believe that's it for admin notes. So here we go. In late July of 1918, the Allies launched a counterattack known to history as the Second Battle of the Marne. It had started with General Charles Mongin, who commanded a frontline corps and felt that the new German salient on the Marne was ready to be attacked and rolled up. General Philippe Beton, commander of the French army and generally a glass-half-empty type of fellow, abandoned his pessimism and supported Mongin's plans. It went on up the line until French, British, Italian, and American troops attacked on the 18th of July, and three weeks later, the German gains in the Marne were no more. It was here that irrefutable evidence that Germany was likely to be the loser in this endless great war was thrown in the faces of the Imperial German Reich's leadership. Quartermaster General General Erich Ludendorff certainly understood the massive Allied attack as the sign that despite his brilliant tactical victory since March, just four months passed, but already a lifetime ago, his advantage in men and offensive momentum was gone. In short order, all of the gains made by the Imperial German Army would be erased. It was time to maintain the pressure on the Germans and break their backs. On the 24th of July, the Supreme Allied Commander General Ferdinand Foch created a memorandum for the commanders of the Entente armies in the field against Germany. He led off the report with the following, taken from the book, The Memoirs of Marshal Foch. Quote, The fifth German offensive, halted at its very start, was a failure. The offensive taken by the French 10th and 6th armies has turned it into a defeat. This defeat must, first of all, be exploited thoroughly on the field of battle itself. That is why we are pursuing our attacks without pause and with all our energy. But the consequences go far beyond the battle itself. The enemy's defeat forms a basis on which should rest the general attitude to be adopted by the Allied armies. End quote. General Foch, soon to be given a baton that made him a marshal of France and cemented his position as generalissimo of the Allies, wanted to attack the Germans everywhere on the Western Front. The goal was to push against the enemy and stress his front lines at several points, something he'd been advocating since at least 1916 during the Battle of the Somme. With stress fractures in the lines, the Germans would have to continuously commit their reserves to plug the gaps. Eventually, they would run out of reserves, and the stress fracture in the front line would be pushed into a break and a breakthrough by the Allies. American Expeditionary Force Commander General John J. Blackjack Pershing wasn't on board with the plan. His armies were still arriving in France. And the trade-off for giving priority to shipping infantrymen overseas was that the French and British 
would have to equip the Americans with crew-served weapons, artillery, and tanks. Pershing wasn't alone. British Army Commander General Sir Douglas Haig and French Army Commander General Bétain were also against Foch's plan, citing exhaustion in their respective armies. Foch wasn't having it. He wasn't about to let the German army rest and refit for the rest of the year because the soldiers on his side were tired and or ill-equipped. He approached the situation calmly, however, and asked the commanders to carefully read his plans and to report back to him despite their initial protests. His plans were for four major Allied attacks beginning on the 26th of September, after everyone had time to prepare accordingly. On the 26th of September, French and American troops would attack German positions in the Champagne and Meuse-Argonne regions. The very next day, two British field armies would attack at Cambrai. The day after that, King Albert of Belgium would lead an army group on an offensive between the Channel and the River Lys. And the day after that, now the 29th of September, one British army and one French army would attack towards Boussigny, which was northeast of the old Somme battlefields. This constant offensive pressure was what would break the German army, and Foch's goal was to end the war in 1918. This was what would do it. Haig, Pershing, and Pétain all agreed with the plan after they had taken some time to step back and think. American General Pershing's objections to Foch's plan were part of an unfortunately frosty relationship with the French general and Allied Supreme Commander. Pershing was under pressure from two sides, Washington, D.C., and from his allies. He had been sent over to France as the AEF commander with the express commands from Secretary of War Newton Baker and U.S. President Woodrow Wilson that under no circumstances whatsoever were American soldiers to be parceled out to the British and French on a permanent basis as cannon fodder. The AEF was to be an independent American army. End of discussion. The French and British, in particular French Prime Minister Georges Clemenceau, wanted U.S. soldiers spread out to Allied units for training and augmentation. During the relentless German offensives of the first months of 1918 that pressed French and British armies to the breaking point, Pershing was constantly pressured to release his soldiers to his allies. With a few notable exceptions, he refused. Pershing had his orders from Washington, and he followed them as the soldier he was. He was stubborn and obstinate and unyielding in his drive to get his own sector of the Western Front manned by American doughboys commanded by him, an American general. This complicated things for Foch, who himself was under pressure from Clemenceau to get the Americans to integrate their units into French and British regiments. On more than one occasion, tempers flared. In one meeting, Foch, incensed at Pershing's unimaginable stubbornness on keeping the AEF together as an American army, angrily told the American general that he'd go over his head 
and to President Wilson himself to get troops released to Allied command. Pershing replied icily, Refer it to the president and be damned. Pershing also complicated things for Foch because Blackjack was dead set on completing a pet project he had had his eye on. And it was one that Foch had actually assigned him in July. Pershing wanted to have his doughboys take out the Saint-Miel salient southeast of Verdun and then drive on Metz behind German lines. There were several reasons for this. First, the AEF would have to take over the Wouvre sector in order to prepare the attack, and thus the Americans would have their own part of the line. Second, Pershing would use this offensive as a reason to recall the troops he'd dispersed to the Allies during the crisis points of the German attacks. Third, the majority of his soldiers and his staff officers desperately needed real-world battlefield experience, and this was a sure way to get it. Militarily, they would also be removing a huge communications barrier that had hampered the French army since 1914. On the 8th of August, Foch was promoted to marshal as the French and British armies worked on reducing the German spring gains and securing good positions for the coming offensive onslaughts. As the American Expeditionary Force was receiving French equipment and training, it technically came under the command of General Pétain, commander of the French army. Pétain, however, was the gentleman in handling this situation delicately. In short, he basically gave the Americans their independence in all but official memos. Pershing actually looked up to Pétain, highly admiring his military mind and looking to him for support and advice when necessary. Knowing that Pétain supported the plan to eliminate the Saint-Miel salient, Marshal Foch also supported the plan throughout August, even though he envisioned the AEF going into battle in the Meuse-Argonne. Then, British Expeditionary Force Commander General Sir Douglas Haig sent Foch a letter with his own thoughts on what should happen on the Western Front. In his view, the Germans were in a huge salient from the Channel Coast to the Meuse-Argonne regions. All of the Allied attacks Foch had planned from his late July memo were correct, especially the Franco-American push in the Meuse-Argonne as it would be one side of an enormous pincer movement to cut out the German lines bulging into northern France and Flanders. Haig then commented, that an American push on Saumiel and then on to Metz would have Doughboys aimed in a direction away from that salient. Thus, the Saint-Miel operation was a waste of time. Foch agreed, and he told Pershing at the end of August that the Saint-Miel attack was off the table. The attack had been scheduled for the 12th of September, and American troops and supplies were already streaming into the Saint-Miel area. The headquarters of the American First Army had been created with much fanfare on August 10th. Foch informed Pershing at the latter's headquarters with the help of interpreters. What followed was a blowout. Pershing was sick of the Allies' merde and wanting American troops just handed over to them. Foch was tired of this American and his monomaniacally stubborn attitude. 
So, words were said, and here they are, courtesy of Mr. Ed Langle's book, To Conquer Hell. Pershing spoke frustratedly. I do not want to appear difficult, but the American people and the American government expect that the American army shall act independently and shall not be dispersed here and there along the Western Front. To which Foch replied, Do you wish to take part in the battle? Most assuredly, but as an American army and in no other way. I imagine at this point, Pershing shot daggers at Foch with his eyes. More words were said, followed by these unhelpful ones from Foch. I mean, you gotta love it when guys work things out. So Foch stated, Your French and English comrades are going into battle. Are you coming with them? Bershing's next words were shouted at the Frenchman across from him. Marshal Foch, you have no authority as Allied Commander-in-Chief to call upon me to yield up my command of the American Army and have it scattered among the Allied forces where it will not be an American Army at all. I must insist upon the arrangement. To which Pershing replied, probably twitching with anger at this point, you may insist all you please, but I decline absolutely to agree to your plan. While our army will fight wherever you decide, it will not fight except as an independent American army. Now Foch was so mad, he shot up from the table. Pershing did the same. And for a moment, the flashest of flashes. Pershing thought he might knock Foch the hell out. Thankfully, he did not. In Foch's memoirs, he makes no mention of the heated words and hotter tempers that raged in that meeting. Perhaps in the manner of the military professional, he stated that, quote, On August 30th, after apprising General Pétain in the morning of this new program, I repaired to ligny en berois and saw General Pershing that same day. I explained to him the broad lines of the projected maneuver which would consist of combining with the Franco-British attack already underway around Cambrai and Saint-Quentin, a Franco-American attack toward Mézières along both banks of the Meuse, end quote. A mediator had to be called in, none other than General Philippe Pétain himself. Pétain brokered a meeting between Foch and Pershing a few days after the epic argument, and both men said their peace. Only now, in an odd twist, each man was prepared to give the other what he wanted. Pershing said he'd forget about Saint-Miel. Foch said, no, don't forget about it. Do Saint-Miel, and then get your troops up to the Meuse-Argonne for an attack there two weeks later on the dot. General Blackjack Pershing agreed to this scenario, even though it was one that even the experienced French army would have paled just thinking about. Within two weeks, the American First Army would launch a successful attack to destroy the Saint-Miel salient and then it would turn around and march a half million men 60 miles on inadequate country roads to launch a second major attack in some of the roughest terrain in France. Blackjack accepted Foch's plan, just as Foch himself had hoped. The American general was more than ready to show what the AEF could and would do. So, after all of this, why was 
the Meuse-Argonne so important to the Allied cause? The answer was the city of Sedan, 35 miles behind German lines, and the two major railways that met southeast of it. These two railways were absolutely vital links to all German forces east and west of the Meuse River. From the city of Metz, one line ran northwest and generally followed the line of the Western Front. The other line kept communications open with German forces east of the Meuse. These two railway lines met at Sedan, and cutting them would be absolutely catastrophic to the Imperial German Army. If Sedan was seized or the railways made unusable or untenable through artillery bombardment, German units in Belgium and France would wither on the vine and quickly. They'd be cut off from Germany itself. True, there was another railway network running through Liège in northern Belgium, but that would be too far away from the battle lines and wouldn't be enough to forestall a massive retreat from Belgium and northern France. In sum, those railway links and the Sedan area converging point kept Germany in the war. Sedan lay 35 miles behind German lines in the Meuse region. In a war that had seen frontline positions change five or six miles at most over the course of months, a target 35 miles away may have seemed like an impossible dream. But the 1918 battles had seen much more fluidity and movement, with German forces smashing into Allied lines, sometimes 30 to 40 miles deep, and the Allies now reconquering all of that territory. Limited movement had returned to the battlefield. Throughout most of the Western Front, French, British, Belgian, Italian, and American amalgamated divisions faced deep battle zones where fighting could and would take place over several dozens of kilometers. In the Meuse-Argonne, the battle area was much more compressed. The Germans, we will see, had long since created a 10-mile-thick defensive zone to repel any attempt to take out Sedan. The Germans here would have much less ground to give, and accordingly, they would fight to the death for every inch of that ground. Okay, so that's the Merzargon and the strategy behind why there would be an attack there. Now, what about the Saint-Mail salient to the southeast? Well, that is for the next episode, when we cover the first major American offensive in the Great War. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast.com at gmail.com or talk to me on the Twitter at WW1Podcast. You can also go through the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. And after two years of general neglect, I have begun using my website again, firstworldwarpodcast.com. You can communicate with me there as well. And it won't be weeks before I log in and take a look. As always, thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.